So this is our, our last uh, formal part of the program. And so I thought it would be suitable to end on a proper note with some housekeeping notes. Uh, in terms of tomorrow morning, just so everyone will be ready, uh, there'll be breakfast at 7.45 on the Bernardo patio, no other formal program, because so many people will be taking early morning flights. Take all your belongings from this room, otherwise they're going to the Cato Institute's budget. Uh, there's going to be a program for the students immediately following when we're done here in the Catalina room. That's that room right there, that way, easy to find. And that's an opportunity to hear from some old people who will lecture you on why you should sit up straight <laughs> and pay attention to spelling and all those good things. No, I hope it'll actually be useful because there's a lot of wisdom that uh, my colleagues can share with you. Well, we've had all this discussion about the nature of reality, about human life, about how markets work, about how governments work, and so on. And I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to change the world to make it better, to be world improvers. And so I'd like to uh, start with some words that we've been over several times, particularly with Randy and Rob, and that's the Declaration of Independence. But I'm not going to focus on the part that lays out the theory of government and the uh, rights of the individual, uh, but rather the very conclusion when the signers said, and for the support of this declaration, with the firm reliance and the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other. And this is very, very important. They did not say we pledge to the world. They said we pledge to each other. That is to say all of the signers. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, when they signed that document, they all knew that they were signing their death warrants in the event of failure. And it is attributed uh, to Benjamin Franklin. He was a witty fellow, so he probably said this, uh, but maybe not. Uh, that he said upon leaving, gentlemen, we must all hang together, for if we do not, we shall certainly hang separately. And they understood that. They understood the gravity of the decision that they had made and the significance of its being public. They had committed themselves, and they had committed themselves not only before the world, but before each other. Uh, thinking about uh, those signers, uh, nine of them did lose their lives during the struggle for independence. It was a long struggle. Some died of wounds, others of illness. Many suffered terrible hardships. Uh, five were imprisoned. Many of them lost everything. They either spent money outfitting soldiers or saw all of their own property and estate totally destroyed in the course of the war. But there was not one who lost his sacred honor. So not one who gave up the cause or went over to the other side or was enticed by any inducements to betray the cause that they had pledged themselves to. Now, each one of those founders uh, was just one person, but they took that mutual pledge, and when you do that, you can make yourselves stronger. We all know this from personal experience. Uh, 
you make a pledge publicly, you want to lose weight or work out or do something, it matters that you do that publicly because you know other people will hold you to it and that matters. And we can do that also. We can make pledges to each other to try and change the world all in the way that we can. Different people have different skills, abilities, interests, talents, but each one of us can do something, something, for the cause of liberty, something that was within our, our uh, arsenal, if you will. So let me start just asking, what can one person do? And the place I like to begin here is with one of the great leaders of the modern libertarian movement, a man who uh, deserves to be remembered for what he achieved, and that's Leonard Reed. Leonard Reed was a most interesting person. He was a businessman from, the, from Southern California, involved with the Chamber of Commerce. And he saw what was happening in the United States, the lack of understanding of the free society, of limited government, all this was being thrown to the winds. And he set up the Foundation for Economic Education. And he started out with this principle that each of us should achieve that degree of excellence and understanding and exposition which will inspire others to seek one out as a tutor. This is something that uh, Randy Barnett will be talking about, I suspect, later with the students. Uh, specifically, not to be the person who goes around shouting and screaming and imposing your views on other people, but to be the knowledgeable person who's calm and reasoned and collected that other people will seek out because they want to know what your opinion is. And that was what Leonard Reed encouraged us to do, to be knowledgeable about the world so that we were not the persons who would be shunned or avoided at cocktail parties or family reunions as, oh, God, always so opinionated, but the person that other people would come to and say, what do you think about this? What's your opinion on that matter? That is a very, very important position to be in. The Cato Institute maintains a lot of resources uh, to help us uh, to do that in English and in Spanish and legalese and uh, other languages. Uh, there's a lot of material out there, and these are just the ones available from the Cato Institute. So not only printed books and so on, but a huge wealth. There are many tens of thousands of documents, and just about anything you would be interested in, you could find something in one of the Cato Institute websites. There are other organizations as well. I could t spend all day doing that. But just from Cato, these are things where you have, when you have some question or some, some intellectual itch you'd like to scratch, you could go to these websites and put in the search term, and there's a very good chance you'll find what you're looking for. Uh, being an educated person, though, knowing something about the world in a humble way, uh, you don't, shouldn't be afraid to speak out. And this is one of the really important elements of human interaction, is if you're the sort of person who speaks out when you see an injustice, you will find you are not alone. And that's also very important. There have been so many occasions, and social so psychologists have studied this, in which when some horrific act is about to take place, one person stands up and says, this is wrong, this is just wrong. And then they find they are not alone. There are other people who are hesitant or afraid or shy who will stand up and say, yes, I, I agree. I don't think this is the right thing to do. So there are many different ways to do this. The opportunities for communication have, have really uh, increased since the time when I was young and 
had to go out and get the wax tablet and stamp it and so on. Uh, now we have all kinds of other ways uh, to convey our ideas uh, to other people. You can also do things in a, a rather more dramatic way, entailing a, a greater commitment. And I just want to go through a few people who stood up as individuals and changed the world. Uh, this lady, I think one of the most admirable people in uh, uh, mid-20th century American history, she just wasn't going to get out of, up out of her seat uh, to make a place for a white man because it was the law that black people had to sit in the back of the bus. And she just said, I'm tired. I don't want to stand up. And you can see this uh, sheriff is rather deeply embarrassed. That's a great picture. It's an iconic picture that helped to change America. Uh, this man does not look at all proud to be doing to this to this very dignified lady. Uh, who just said, I'm not going to do this. And she changed the world. Another individual, uh, Dr. Franklin Kameny, actually I should change that, he just passed away. Um, he had been dismissed. He was a map maker. He had served in World War II, was a decorated World War II veteran. And then they found out that he was homosexual. You can't have people like that making maps. I mean, really. <laughs> Can you, can you imagine the horror of homosexual maps? <laughs> and he wasn't going to just go quietly. And that was in a time, the 1950s, when people were outed and shamed and humiliated and many people were just driven to suicide. And he said, I'm not going to do this. And he spent the rest of his life fighting for basic human rights and equal dignity before the law. And he saw his vision achieved. This country has changed, even just in the United States, so much just in the last 10 years. It's been an astonishing change uh, from what it had been in the past when people were arrested and beaten up by the police as a regular uh, course. Uh, this lady, uh, she changed the world. When the authorities came along and said, uh, We'd like a nicer class of taxpayer here, and we're going to take your house. We're going to buy your house from you in order to give it to someone else. And she said, my house is not for sale. In fact, you'll notice that wonderful picture behind her, uh, not for sale. <coughs> uh, now, we lost on that case narrowly in front of the Supreme Court. But in fact, most of the states have since amended their constitutions to provide stronger protection for property than we had even been able to ask for in front of the Supreme Court. So she won on that. She won not at the Supreme Court, but she did win in the states on the constitutional level. And that woman very bravely stood up and said, you can't just bulldoze my house to give the property to somebody else. This gentleman, I mentioned how much I admire Bob Levy. He is an amazing person, and the Cato Institute is very fortunate to have him as the chairman. Let me tell you just a few Bob Levy stories very quickly. Uh, he was, got his PhD in uh, statistics, mathematics, and business, uh, had put himself through college playing piano and working in a hardware store. He was very, very successful in business, was one of the first companies providing 
electronic financial data. In the old days, people would have a call up, and you put your phone in a little cradle and download information. And he sold at a very good time. Having developed that company as the internet was just starting, uh, he was able to provide the infrastructure to other companies to do that. And at the age of 50, he said, well, what am I going to do now? So he went to law school. Went to law school, got a law degree, clerked for two federal judges, and was an intern at the Institute for Justice. So all of you interns there, remember this. Uh, Bob, in his 50s, was an intern. And one of the lawyers there uh, told me, he said, you know, it was kind of weird. He was one of the, one of the youngest intern, uh, lawyers there. He said, my intern had a PhD, was a millionaire, and was the age of my dad. <laughs> but he said, Bob would come up to him and say, I finished all that research, I got all the documents, I've done all the work, do you have anything else for me? And uh, Scott said, well, I've, I've got to staple all these papers. He said, I'll do that. He said, well, like you're old and rich. <laughs> and he said, I'll do that. That's my job. I'm an intern here. At the Cato Institute, he was a legal analyst. And uh, I asked him once a question. Because every year, he donated a substantial multiple of his salary to the Cato Institute. Ed Crane always said he was a model employee. <laughs> and I asked him, though, I did say, I'm just puzzled. I also asked him for investment advice, and he, he gave me good investment advice. He said, Tom, just buy these mutual funds that just buy the whole market, and don't think about it. You're not smart enough to be able to play the market. And that was very, very good advice. Uh, but I asked him, I said, so why do you do this? I mean, why do you, why do you take a salary? I understand wanting to be a writer and be on TV and all the cool things you do. Why do you take a salary? And he said, I do my work. I come in every day. I'm here before 9 o'clock in the morning. I do a full day's work. I have my obligations, and for that I am paid. At the end of the year, my wife and I sit down. We look at our investments and the wealth that we have and all of our commitments and philanthropic interests, of which the Cato Institute was one, but there were a number of others. And then we decide about the donations we're going to make, and those are two different functions. But I come in, and I do my work and for that I am paid. And I have a professional responsibility. Really, he's just a remarkable person. He has enormous personal integrity. Uh, in this case of the, the uh, Heller uh, lawsuit, doesn't own a firearm, really didn't have any experience with firearms. And, uh, but he said, this is the law. He really looked into it, thought about it, decided this was the right thing. In the case in California, challenging the ban on same-sex marriage, uh, he looked at the issue, he looked at both sides, he thought, he read enormous amount of material, and he decided that that was an invidious discrimination against the class of citizens. And uh, his wife assures me he also is not gay, as well as not having, <laughs> having a gun. But he just said, this is just the right position to take. And he, again, was very active in that lawsuit uh, financially and as a legal scholar. He's really a remarkable person. So you can also speak out in somewhat less dramatic ways. Those are pretty high-profile things with some risk in the case of Kilo and, and, and uh, Kameny and others. 
Uh, letters to the editor. They are very, very widely read. Less so than they were in the past, but it's still one of the most widely read, read parts of any magazine or newspaper. If you write a letter to the editor, you can get published, you can change people's ideas. And we have a lot of advice on how to write letters to the editor. Uh, Dear idiot is not the best way to start it. Um, uh, abusive letters are not effective, uh, excoriating them for their low IQ and so on. Uh, respectful, one point, factually based and short. And those letters do get published and people do read them. Just one little point. If you write seven points, they'll edit it down and put in the least important one. That's just the way the world works. Uh, you can write letters to elected representatives. And those things actually matter. They do, I won't say read them, but they have their assistants read them quickly and count them. And I've been in congressional offices and asked, so, so what kind of feedback are you getting? And say, well, the mail's going strongly against this. So what does that mean? We got 27 letters against and five for. It's really amazing you could, if you're one of those 27. And why is that? Because they know if you were motivated enough to write a letter saying oppose this bill or support this bill, that there are other people like you. You're the kind of person who has a circle of others who share your views. So they do count them, they do take them seriously. And sitting down, now you can do it electronically, just a quick thing, those things do matter. And if you also get your family members and others to write, again, respectful, uh, short letters indicating what you support. Showing up at city council meetings, um, my brother, I'm very proud of him, he's not a very political person, but he went and testified on the uh, uh, Colorado marijuana issue. He has never had a beer. He doesn't know what beer tastes like. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. He doesn't smoke anything. He's the most straight arrow person I've ever known. And he went and testified on this issue. And he said, it was like a, you could hear a pin drop. He said, if you think we do not have drugs in our community, let me explain my education in the American drug culture. He had been the chairman or the foreman of a jury in a murder trial. A young woman who had been involved in the drug business, she was making staggering amounts of money uh, at the age of 20, thousands and thousands of dollars a month, just seemed unbelievable as a drug distributor. And then the, uh, the big drug kingpin decided, for some reason, that she had probably ratted him out to the feds. He said apparently that was not true, but it didn't matter. And so he hired two murderers, and they had the video footage. They went to a sporting goods store, bought two weights, like for a weightlifting set, made sure they were the right heft, met her in an alley, and clubbed her and beat her to death. So he said, "If I, don't, I didn't know anything about the drug culture until this experience on a murder trial. I now know a lot about it. And if you think we don't have drugs around us, you're living in a fantasy world. How much better if it were legalized and we did not have young women beaten to death in alleys? That helped to sway the vote and made a really, really big difference. So as a citizen, you can go and do things like that. Now this is something that's really important to me, is the ability to change someone's life with a book. 
And I mentioned, so in that book, uh, Realizing Freedom, I have a little mention of a person who's very important in my life. I get all teary usually when I talk about her. Her name was Priscilla Slocum, uh, way back uh, when it was, she started her business in the 50s. Uh, she thought no one would buy books from a woman. Again, just think how our society has changed so much. So she went under the name P.K. Slocum, bookseller. And that was before the internet, before Twitter, all that sort of thing. She would get letters from people saying what books they're interested in. She would then compile lists and go to book sales and auctions and find those volumes and then send you a letter saying, I found the book you wanted for it'll cost you four dollars or, or three dollars or whatever it happens to be. And I bought a lot of books from her when I was a teenager. Got the collected works of, of uh, Herbert Spencer, which I paid for ten dollars a month, which, which when you're a teenager is a lot of money, uh, especially a long time ago. And uh, she also gave me some books that really changed my life. She said also, you should not only read books by libertarians, she was a real uh, libertarian granny, but also read the other side. And she gave me books by Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mussolini. She says, you should understand these people. What is it that makes them tick? Because we expect you to go out and defeat them. So she changed my life, and she gave me these books. And every time I give a book to a young person, I think of her and think maybe this will have a similar impact on someone's life. In fact, I was chatting on Facebook with someone just a few years older than I am uh, that I hadn't seen in years. We reconnected through Facebook after 35 years. And uh, we were talking about someone I'd been reading, and he said, do you have a copy of The Black Obelisk by Eric Maria Remark? And I said, you know, I do. And I went over to my bookshelf, and there it was. It was from PK. He said, she gave me that book, too by a German writer, author of All Quiet on the Western Front, and it's about the effects of hyperinflation in a society and how it destroys the social order and makes tyranny possible. And we, we uh, talked about that, what, a, what an amazing lady she was, and both of us still, uh, 43 years later, have those books on our shelves. You can do things on cooperation with others as well. So all these things have been individual things. You can organize a local group to combat injustice and promote liberty. There are all kinds of ways to do that. Get that. Um, there are anti-tax groups, pro-peace groups, property rights groups, groups that try to control state budgets. There's a huge array of them. Little bit of effort, usually on the internet or contacting other groups, you can get in touch uh, with organizations. You can also get in touch with existing groups that have uh, organization and provide financial support to them. And there's just a, a few of them coming up here that I'm involved in or know about. Uh, those groups uh, do a good job, in my opinion, of spending their resources wisely to advance the cause of limited government and individual rights. So, ending up with the Cato Institute, obviously. So all those groups, find the ones that interest you, and if you wanted to become a donor, you can do that with a $10, $20, $100, whatever it is you can afford a month. It's so easy now, you don't even know you don't have it. 
uh, because it's just taken out of your, your account. Uh, I will mention a couple of groups that I think are especially interesting for the members of this audience. This is one I've been involved with, helping them to get this set up. Uh, because we had been discussing there was, in a way, very little for people to do if you're in Colorado Springs or, or St. Petersburg, Florida, what do you do? And the Bastiat Society is a great organization. It's a club for business and professional people, like Lions, Rotary, Kiwanis, and Club, except people who understand the basic principles that Frederick de Bastiat articulated for us. Uh, when I worked with them, they wanted to do, they had a, a successful club in Charleston, South Carolina, and I knew the organizers of it. I'd gone down and spoken at it. It's a wonderful group of local business and professional people, and they wanted to have a franchise. So I helped to raise uh, some money for them, about $15,000, and I said, you need swag if you're going to be successful. That is the key. So they have these wonderful lapel buttons and things that help people feel like they're members of a club. They have chapters around the United States. They're growing. In Colorado Springs, the one I spoke to, they get a couple of hundred people to come to this. And it's a great opportunity to meet like-minded people and really good things have come out of these clubs. And people have said, you know, should we take this from, from the city council, look at the terrible things they're doing, and now you've got a group of people who favor liberty, who say, let's do something about it. So I recommend visiting this uh, organization and uh, seeing how you could get involved. A chapter in your area, set one up, or be somehow otherwise involved. The other one that's been a group I've spent a lot of time on, it's really uh, precious to me, is the Students for Liberty. This organization really gives me hope for the future, so I'm a personal donor to it. Every month I hear a little sound out of my bank account and uh, the money goes straight over to them, and I'm very proud of what they do with it. The good thing is they're cheap, and I like that. Uh, they, they spend money very wisely. Uh, when they, I go to their conferences, they do not sell Coca-Cola. They have Bob's off-brand cola-like soda product. <laughs> and that is cheap because I know it's my money that is going into that, and that does matter to me. And just to give you a sense of how important they are, uh, here in the United States, they have thousands of students come to their regional conferences and their conference. They have the International Conference in Washington. I've been very active uh, helping them with African Students for Liberty. Uh, this is a huge growth area for the libertarian movement right now is in Africa. In Nairobi, <coughs> I spoke at the conference, the Eastern Africa country. We had students from Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Malawi. Uh, uh, Burundi, uh, Rwanda, and a couple of students uh, made it from Nigeria and uh, uh, Egypt and uh, Ghana. They had registered, I put in about $300 for Facebook advertising, and they got 1,100 and something registrants. And then I raised, put in some money for them to get a really nice haul. And they said, well, we, we, we're hoping for like 800. We know not everyone who signed up will be there. And I said, it's okay. Don't set the, the goal that high. They ended up getting 460. And 63 showed up the last day in a bus from Uganda. They had all kinds of border hassles and problems, and as, as you could imagine. And I said, 
you know, if you get more than a hundred, I'll be so happy. It's difficult to explain to them. I said, if you had told me 20 years ago we were going to hold a libertarian student conference in Nairobi with 523 students, I would have said, whatever you're smoking, it's illegal. <laughs> right? This is not possible. And they just concluded two days ago their West, Afri West African conference at the University of Ibadan, Olomayo Okedaran, did a fabulous job organizing this. 1,180 students took part. So, so anytime you might feel a little down about bad things in the world, remember this. There's a new generation that is infusing our movement with energy. So when we think about the way that the world has has changed. I've mentioned some people who have been in the news in some way, but one person is unknown to almost everyone, but this particular person changed the world. Jean-Claude Marie Vincent de Gournay, usually just called Vincent de Gournay. And he had an enormous impact on the world. Without him, liberalism might have been stillborn. There might have been no liberalism. He was a, a business person, a successful merchant. He was the intendant of commerce, which is a kind of a government-appointed supervisorial uh, post. And he knew about interventionism in the market and all of the harm that it caused. And he took under his wing a very important uh, figure, uh, Anne-Robert Jacques Turgot. He financed the translation of books into French from other languages that were about the, what we would call the early science of economics. He paid for their publication. He encouraged people to write on these issues. He's known to have been, if not the originator, at least the promoter of the slogan laissez-faire. And he showed the young Turgot how markets work and the enormous cruelty of the interventionist process. People punished and even tortured or broken on the wheel because they sold the wrong quality of cloth that was not approved, or because the prices that they had agreed with their purchasers were not the approved prices. And he explained, look at the harm. And he explained what voluntary exchange meant. Both parties benefit. That's why they both said yes. Turgot later went on to have an enormous impact in France and in the United States. He advised people. He said, remember, remember, never forget limited government. This is something that some of our conservative friends forgot when they had power, the principle of limited government. It wasn't just a question of capping taxes, that's important. What we know happened was the deficit went out of control because people were not paying attention to spending. And he said control spending and the functions of the state. He would not have had that impact and that advice would not have been delivered to the American founders had it not been for Jacques-Claude Marie Vincent de Gournay. So this person had an enormous impact on the world. So, what I encourage us to do is to celebrate the sponsors of liberty. Those are the people who are making a difference uh, on behalf of liberty.
And this notion, if you look for their monument, you will not find any place a monument to Vincent de Gournay. There are no statues. He was a business person. He was not a military general or king or a politician. He didn't get a presidential library paid for by the taxpayers. These monuments to vanity that we currently are forced to pay for in the United States, every president, no matter how much of a failure he was, gets hundreds of millions of dollars to build monuments to themselves. There's nothing like that. His monument is all around us. It's the modern world. It's the world of freedom. That is the monument that he left behind. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. So if you want to find the monument to all the great heroes of liberty, very few of them have statues. Very few of them have temples. None of them have presidential libraries. They have changed the world. It is the freedom that we enjoy that that is their monument, what they have left for us. So each of us can have some positive impact. And what I encourage everyone to do is to make the promotion of liberty a life project. So regardless of your age, uh, and we know various of us have various likely amounts of time that we will survive. I'm, I'm past my sell-by date. I have outlived every person who ever went before me in my family. Uh, so I do not ex anticipate living a very, very long life. It's just not in our genes. Uh, but liberty is my passion. It is what uh, I do. I do not expect everyone to have a similar obsession uh, or for it to be as important or essential because other people have other commitments in life. Children and families. I don't have a family. I don't have any kids. I do have cats. Uh, uh, so those other commitments are important. Business, career, all the other things that make life worth living. But as you go forward, one commitment that will be with you for the rest of your life and looking at the audience, I would say there are people here today who will still be active, and I hope active promoting liberty, in 110 years. That during that 110 years, those people who are here in the room will be committed to liberty as one among many important commitments, family and uh, children and all those different things, but that liberty will be with us. So thank you very much for your part in Cato University and your commitment to liberty.